Welcome to Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. I'm your host, Stephanie Pavlantos, and with me today is Dr. Dina Dye. Hi, Dina. How are you? Hi, Stephanie. And I'm so glad you're here because I was very excited to talk with you and have you on my show because I've heard and listened to great things. And so I'm excited for you to share some of the things that I've already been learning from you with um, my listeners. Well, I appreciate being invited. So thanks for that. And as long as you've only heard good things, I'm good with that. Yes, that's right. (laughs) So let me tell a little bit about her and then she can share more. So she has her um, Doctor of Ministry in Hebraic Studies in Christianity. She is a teacher and author, and I'll let her explain some of her books. She's a speaker and a radio host, and she has a great website as well as a TV show on Israel TV Network. You've been teaching on all sorts of venues, and you've got lists on your website of those places, and... You've also been doing this for over 40 years, so you have quite the resume and a lot there that people can, you have videos on your website, you have articles and teachings and all sorts of things, so I'm excited to explore all of those, but um, but go ahead if you want to share some more, um, even about your books, why don't you right now just take the time to share a little bit about what you've done, what you've written, and what you what you talk about. Sure. Well, like you said, I've been at this for over 40 years. A nice Jewish girl came into the faith in 1979. And I was always kind of a historian type. So I just took those skills and really began to to work them. Now, I did go through a period, you know, raising my kids, homeschooled them. But at the same time, I was still studying. I had binders filled with notes and information, just trying to understand more and more. Had celebrated the feasts as a child, you know, being in a Jewish home and going to the synagogue, et cetera. But now there was just this this need to be able to show people the connection between the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and, and the New Testament, and to understand Yeshua in a much broader and big picture way. So the culmination of this, I feel, probably about 2015-16, I had done a lot of research on the temple, trying to understand it, the patterns, the pictures, et cetera. And I took all of that material for all of those years and began to put forth it. It was basically a trilogy. I didn't know that for sure. The first round looked like it was going to be a thousand pages. I thought, this is not good. You cannot sell a book that's a thousand pages. So I broke it up. And so the first uh, one that came out was the temple revealed in creation, So showing the temple pattern in the creation story. The second one was the temple revealed in the garden because the garden is very much a temple pattern as well. And then finally, just last year, I published the temple revealed in Noah's Ark. So it basically gives you from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, the understanding of what temples meant in that ancient culture. And then we bring it forward today, because I don't think you can understand Paul's words that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you don't understand what the temple is, and if we don't go all the way back to the creation, Genesis chapter one. So put it all together and then just recently published a workbook that goes with all three books. So what I did was I took major themes. uh, There's 12 different lessons and the themes run through all three books because the, the, those themes are very similar and we and really they're all over the bible so if you can see those concepts and themes 
that sort of helps solidify the three books. And I think it makes it what I'm hearing from my students, because I teach a class, an online Zoom class kind of every quarter, is that now the books are easier to understand that I'm bringing to them the larger picture. So I've been doing a lot of work in that regard. Um, I have a website, Foundations in Torah, which you can go to. It's a membership, but there's free all the way up to whatever you want to support the the website. I have a Rumble channel as well. So I do a weekly news podcast with Dr. Rick Wadge from Israel TV Network. Uh, we call it Uncensored News. So we're not censored. We're not on YouTube. We're on Rumble. And this gives me an opportunity to integrate what's going on in the news today with the biblical story, because the the story has not changed. Uh, the players are different. So that's been uh, a blessing. So you can find me on Israel TV Network. Also, uh, I'm on Messianic Lamb TV. We air this that show, Uncensored News. You can find all my books on Amazon. They're all there, uh, workbooks and, and the regular books. And uh, I'm also on Facebook, although I try not to be, but I am there. I have a presence. And on some of the other social media, but I won't go into that. So that's kind of what I have available. Awesome. And yeah, and I have been checking those things out. So uh, very impressive. And I don't see that lightly because when I can sit and learn many things from someone in just a half hour, <laughs> I'm always impressed by how much, how precise you can be in that half hour. Because again, I didn't get through the whole series by any means, but just in what I listened to, um, in what I had time to listen to, because I'm going to go back and finish everything. But I was amazed at what I learned. And and what you do so well is you, you may have already said this, but you take the Old Testament and you take the New Testament and you show how they overlap. You show how they come together and how everything comes together. And you said this to me earlier, but it's not, we put everything in a box and this story is separate from this story and this story is separate from this story, but they're really not. It's one big redemptive story of God. And as we call it, his story and from creation to revelation, it all goes and fits together. And it's, it's actually just the method of putting all those pieces together for us. Well, that's why I say if you can get through, you know, my three books from, and even if you can understand Genesis 1 through 10, basically until Abraham comes from Earl of the Chaldees, you got the whole, you got the whole Bible story because mm -hmm. it's all there. And all it does is repeat over and over again. Mm -hmm. All of the Bible is just this repetition of an, of, of a new creation. The story told over and over again until we hit Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, who is the ultimate in the restorer of creation. So it's not just, you know, Jesus died on the cross to save me and I'm going to heaven. Mm -hmm. It's that he came to as king to restore the heavens and the earth. So the story in Genesis one is this pattern of making a temple, which is we what we would call the cosmos or the ordered universe, so that God could have a place for his presence. So the place of his presence is always in a house. So the house building story is in Genesis one, but then the house is destroyed or violated uh, by the breaking of the covenant we see with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so what happens, they're exiled out of the garden, they're exiled out of the place of the presence of God, they're exiled out of the quote unquote temple. And so then we move into the story of Noah, and the Noah story is really about rebuilding 
a house, a place for the presence of God, as God has to cleanse the earth. And of course, at the end of Noah's story, we see <laughs> we see problems again. So it's mm-hmm. kind of I, I describe it as Groundhog Day, where we build a temple and then it's destroyed, and then we rebuild it, and then it's destroyed, and we go on and on and on. And of course, until we get to Yeshua, and he talks about his body as being a temple and a temple that can never be destroyed. And then he passes that work onto us to build a place for the presence of God on the whole earth, which is seen as a garden and a temple we are that can never be destroyed, built by, you know, not by human hands, if you will. So that that's really the big picture. That's really what the gospel is, a return to building a place for the presence of God so he can dwell as king in our midst. Wow. It's actually pretty simple. It is. It is. When you put it like that, it's like you can see how it all unfolds and you can see how it continues to unfold in the New Testament to the Messianic kingdom and then heaven. Exactly. And, and one of the things that you you brought up, now this comes from a video I saw from Sinai to Sermon on the Mount. And where did you give this teaching? Because you're obviously outside on a stage somewhere. So where were you teaching? Yeah, that was, uh, well, I initially did it for Shavuot, but I'm pretty sure I taught that uh, in Oklahoma at Sukkot, kind okay. of revamped it. And so, yeah, I'm outside on a stage uh, teaching that. Okay. And you you compare the mountain to heaven and to the temple. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So this is kind of an important uh, area people don't really understand. So mountains for the ancient people were very important. They're that first fixed, stable structure. Try to imagine an, an ancient person, you know, looking around at their environment the the most solid stable entity is a mountain and so they're in a world in ancient mesopotamia where they had to deal with floods often uh <clears throat> as the waters came down from the north and they would flood the tigris and euphrates so when you built uh, like a ziggurat which is an artificial mountain those things were like served as bulwarks against floods so that's kind of the thinking so what happens is in the ancient world, the gods (laughs) would build temples on top of mountains. So they were, the the top of the mountain was seen as as if you were entering into heaven. So as you entered into the temple, it was as though you were entering into heaven. They equated those two things together. We clearly don't do that. And so on the top of the mountain, they would build their structure and that's where they would rule and reign from. And the floodwaters, which would cause great fear for the ancient cultures, uh, could never take, take out the mountain. So the mountain served as this first fixed point, if we look back at the creation, and it was designed to be a connecting point between heaven and earth. So in their world, it was important that heaven and earth were were connected. How do you bring those two spheres together? So when I talk about heaven and earth, where modern minds go is heaven as, you know, air and gases and, you know, space. And then earth is, you know, dirt and terra firma. But for the ancients, those heaven and earth represented domains or spheres where certain parties could could inhabit. So, for example, the top of the mountain was the location for the gods and the kings would take their seat on the throne. And then the earth was the place for the folks or the priests 
And they, the priests, for example, were responsible to unite heaven and earth, to bring those two spheres together in kind of a covenant relationship. And so the priests acted on behalf of the people. They ascended the mountain. They went into the place of the presence of whatever the king or the gods or whatever. And they got their marching orders from them and they take them back down the mountain and tell the people. So the only way to connect heaven and earth was through the mechanism of the priests. But that was the point of the mountain. You you know, you went up into heaven, you came back down. And so what's so fascinating to me about the New Testament is that Yeshua did not function in the proper way of kings. So kings, you, you see that the temple, the second temple, for example, is built on top of Mount Moriah. And uh, that's where the high priest function and the king, etc., and here we have Yeshua, who's the king of kings, the Lord of all the world. He's he's not up in the ivory tower on top of the mountain, right, giving orders and to the priests, the priesthood, et cetera. He's walking around with the folks mm-hmm. and he's just with them. So he's that mechanism, that connecting point. But he's down with with the folks and bringing, you know, healing and restoration and all kinds of things. Truly that a, a true king who is going to bring benefit and prosperity to his people is going to be walking among his people. And we just, we don't really see any examples of that, do we, in scripture other than him. Right. But you can understand why they were confused, I guess, Mm -hmm. that because what they expected exactly was a king coming in in all his glory, saving them as a nation and getting rid of all their enemies. And And I think you brought that up in the video that, David was the one who removed all the enemies so Solomon could build the temple because you were at rest. Yeah. And that's the story in Genesis. So uh, just stepping back and not looking at it so much for material origins, but we have this like in Genesis two of chapter one, verse two and three, the idea of this tohu vavohu or this state of chaos. And so God defeats the state of chaos, which is, represented by enemies and then once you know that the enemies have been pushed back now he can begin to build so you see that same pattern all through enemies need to be pushed back whether they're military or you know empire or whatever and once the enemies have been defeated the king is then free to be able to build rest has come and he can build a temple and now he can be ruler over that empire and quote unquote and uh and and uh, bring prosperity for his people. But his job, of course, is going to be always to protect the people from enemies that will come in. So for the, the second temple period, first century, the, the enemy they're facing, of course, it's kind of uh, multi because they've got Rome. That's their big enemy. But they're also having to deal with the enemy, quote unquote, of, of the temple leadership because they are lording it over the people and they're quite corrupt plus the Herodian dynasty. So they are just swallowed up by, you know, the, uh, the the global governance and the ruling class in the first century. And so they're expecting someone to come on a white horse, you know, who's a military leader, strong and powerful and can defeat the Romans and everything else. And then here comes Yeshua, the Messiah, you know, in humility. And But he goes and he does the things that they need. They need to be healed and set free and, you know, all those things. So it's a really unique story of how, you know, God in Yeshua became king. And I think just like you said, as you're describing all this, I'm thinking, 
that is what Yeshua did, though. He defeated a larger enemy, yes. which was the demonic forces, which was Satan and his evil. He defeated them, which they, you know, wasn't obviously something they could see. But he took a much larger enemy and he defeated him on the cross. And and then what did he do? Now he's setting up his kingdom in us. And so he's still doing the same things. It just wasn't what they expected. Well, who would? I mean, try to imagine yourself in, you know, first century Palestine at the time, you know, Israel. And, uh, you know, you're not, you know, you want someone to wipe out the enemy. I mean, the, the enemy that they're facing, you just want someone to come in and take them all out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not quite how that worked. And so right. the and enemy still do. Yes. But the, the, you know, I mean, without going into too much detail, they, they all, the, the uh, Kings, one of their roles was they were uh, great hunters, hunters of lions. So the idea of, you know, God is showing us within humanity is what are really our beast nature, the thing that he needs to remove. So the, the story really becomes of that, like, how does God, uh, remove the the beast in us <laughs> and restore to us our humanity that's mm-hmm. the fight as well through you know the entire biblical story is mm-hmm. god giving humanity back uh, its dignity honor and all these things and so he has to regenerate the human heart in order to be able to do that mm-hmm. so just as kings would take out these beasts uh, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, <laughs> you know, God's goal in all this is to regenerate and restore the human heart to return back to us again, our humanity so that we can extend the kingdom, uh, throughout the earth in that method, not using, you know, slings and arrows and guns and, you know, all that sort of thing. Mm. And I read something this morning it, and it, it wasn't from you but today, this morning, but but what I read was when they talked about, um, I forget the verse, but it talks about the waters of affliction. And the teacher I was reading said that those waters of affliction, waters can, in the, in their power, and they can drill holes through rock and they can mm-hmm. destroy the outer layers of rock. And so when you compare our heart to stone, the waters of affliction are meant to soften that heart and destroy the hardness of it. And, and I thought, I mean, that just kind of went along with what you were just saying, you know, he he's after our hearts and getting our hearts right with him. And, and even the whole understanding of the lion and, and, you know, while he was a lion of Judah, he's obviously not our enemy, but he describes Satan as a lion looking for prey, you know, looking for someone to consume. And so, so that whole, that, all that imagery he used in scripture that they would have, I guess, understood when you put it the way you just did. So I think that's incredible. So if we go back to understand sort of the, the initial cosmos creating aspect, they understood their world in three parts. We call it a tripartite or structure or a three-tiered house, if you will. And that would be heaven, earth, and sea. So the seas were the area underneath, outside, you know, the boundary that God had created in terms of heaven and earth as as his house. But the seas 
were a really big deal for the ancients. They were terrified of water because of its destructive power. What you're just saying, as I go back and mention, floods were the most terrifying thing that they could experience. So in the, you know, in early ancient Mesopotamia, they would put their little villages and sort of cities along the banks of the Tigris and the Euphrates, for example, because they needed water to live. And so every year they worried when the water came down from, you know, northern Turkey was going to wipe out their villages. And it happened more often than not. Once they developed irrigation techniques and -hmm. they could build canals, they could move their cities and towns away from the, the, the big rivers and they could protect the towns. So we, we don't have a good appreciation of what that would be like, how devastating every year if your entire town was, was wiped out. So seas came to represent, um, though the, the world of chaos and over time came to represent enemies. And we see that in scripture because the Gentile nations are associated with the seas. That is sort of the metaphorical picture that we get. And so the, there was always this fear. So when armies would come against them, the Bible would describe them as, as in terms of seas and, and, you know, waters and rivers, raging rivers and things like that. So over time, that's how they began to see it. And these, uh, so the idea was of, of taming that water, taming those enemies, et cetera. So that's, that's another example of if we understand the ancient world a little better, some of the things in the Bible are going to make sense. So we mm-hmm. contrast the waters of chaos with, you know, with the waters of creation, because out of the waters of creation comes new life out of the womb, which is water. So there's this, this sort of contrast that goes all the way through the Bible. And so the kingdom, the new creation, the kingdom of heaven on earth comes through water, only waters that are, you know, that produce life versus the waters that produce death. Okay, good. Wow. You said a few things I wanted to hit on because you, well, first of all, you named the three things. So C was the. Yeah. So it's connected to the underworld, the place of the God, you know, where the gods control the, you know, the death, Sheol, the pit, take your pit. Right. Outside the boundary. Yeah. And then was it then seas, the earth, and then the heavens? Correct. So, so the earth is, there's this thing called the sacred center. So if you took heaven, earth, and sea, the earth is the sacred center, if you will, between those two spheres. So the the sphere of the seas is dominated by death. And then, of course, heaven, I talked about, uh, you know, where the king and the gods ruled over. But earth was seen as the garden. So the Garden of Eden really, sh- it's not, and it doesn't say the Garden of Eden. It's its more technically the Garden in Eden, because every temple in the ancient world had a garden attached to it. The king's responsibility is to feed his subjects. So we'll see, for example, King Nebuchadnezzar, although we're not 100% sure it's him, but he had the hanging gardens of Babylon, right? Every temple complex where the palace was located, et cetera, had a garden attached to it. So the earth is seen as a garden completely. And the imagery here of heaven, earth, and sea is not like on a horizontal plane, which is how we see the temple. When you come up, say, second temple period, you come up into the grand plaza, you're going to enter into through the gates, you have the... um, 
the ulam, which is the porch of the, this is the temple building, for example. And then you go through the, uh, a curtain and you enter into the holy place. And then you enter through another two curtains into the holy of holies. So it's on a flat horizontal plane. But, but the imagery is of mountains, back to mountains, the top of the mountain being heaven, halfway down kind of the earth, and then at the bottom or underneath being the sea. So everything's mm-hmm. on a vertical, the connection that way. And uh, it, it it's hard for us because, you know, we just, we see everything kind of on a flat plane in that regard. But this, this sort of tripartite structure of the heavens, earth, and seas then takes its form with the tabernacle, the first temple, the second temple. So they all have this this idea. So everything outside the boundary is considered a place of exile and death, like the wilderness that we see in Exodus. And then inside the boundary is the place where the king is seated on the throne, where peace and rest are, where everything is functioning the way it's supposed to. It's a place of safety. So one of the things you talked about, and I want to make sure I understand it, because you talked about that Adam then, be, well, first we have to go back to the fact that most of our lives, as far as in the, within the church, we're taught that the Garden of Eden or Eden is somewhere in near Babylon. But from what I understand, it was actually more like sure. Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is now. Or is that? Well, I mean, we don't know. Right. So, we don't. You know, we don't. So I'm trying to get us away from necessarily thinking about a physical location as okay. I'm trying to get us to see the whole earth was meant to be a temple. Okay. And it was meant to be the center where God, of course, we take the earth and then we have the garden as being the center. And in the center of the garden is the two trees, which probably represented thrones. Okay. So we could argue certainly over, you know, is it Mesopotamia? Is it Jerusalem? See, this is where we get into the box. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Same with the flood, you know, the locale and the specific area and the geography. And, and while there are, you know, the Bible clearly has geography and specific places where things happen. I'm personally not so sure that the first few chapters of Genesis are meant for us to argue over that as it Mm -hmm. is to understand, again, the bigger picture, that God created the earth as his garden. And at Mm -hmm. the center of his garden would be his throne where he would be seated and he would rule and reign from. And then as we go through the the biblical story and and to, to Yeshua, who is to restore the garden, and let me just, I'll throw this in because one of the, I mentioned earlier that kings were hunters, but Mm -hmm. kings were also considered horticulturalists. They were gardeners. One of the titles for a king was a gardener. So isn't it interesting that we see Yeshua, right? Uh, And then the Miriam's going, okay, there's the gardener in the, you know, in the tomb and the garden area. So it's, there's a bit of, now not to say that isn't real and and there isn't a specific event, but again, he is passing off to us the responsibility he we are his hands extended if you will on the earth to do the work that needs to be done to make sure the earth the whole earth becomes uh the the place of the presence of god once again mm-hmm. with john 15 yep. god's described as the the gardener so to speak so 
And remember, Noah was also described as a gardener. Mm -hmm. It's very classic language, ancient Near East classic language for king. He's called a gardener. So when you see that in scripture, you you know, when you understand that your radar goes up and go, wait a minute, something else is going on here. And so that again, that brings him back to Adam. Mm -hmm. He was over the garden. Yes. He was put in. And over the animals in the garden yeah. to keep yeah. it. So this is this is my opinion, you know, and can take it for what you want. I, I don't want to be dogmatic about it. But in in all my research and writing, I have concluded that the story of the Bible, you know, I think there were p- other people and cultures and stuff going on, that the Bible story isn't so much about the material origins of the universe, which it, it certainly could be, but that it is focused on God's heirs. So his first heir to the throne is going to be Adam and whether we can substitute humanity or whatever, Adam and his wife, Chava, they are rulers and they have been assigned the responsibility to rule and reign over that domain. And as we go through Genesis chapter five, we see the line, the genealogical line of kings down to Noah. So the Our story, the biblical story, is about rulership and the kings and how they rule and reign and how they pass down the kingship to the next in line to the heirs until we come to the the second, the last Adam in Yeshua. It isn't to say that there aren't other people. I think that there are, but that the Bible isn't that concerned about it. It is wanting us to see how rulers and kings are supposed to operate. And then we have these little messages intimated to us that we are supposed to serve as kings and priests and rulers over the earth. So now we have the story about how we're supposed to do that in the right way, ultimately through Yeshua. Right. And that makes sense because I've heard that often, Um, not from my church and not from any church, but I've heard it as I was studying more of the Hebrew scriptures and from Hebrew teachers um, that really parts that that those early parts of Genesis are more about setting the structure of the earth and the rulers and and not necessarily focusing on this person and that person but I, I don't even know how to explain it well in my own words but but just what you're saying it's the more of the st- learning from the stories about what the structure of the temple was to be what the structure of the priests were to be what the structure of everybody that God was creating and his people were to function and how they were to act and be and yeah. serve him yeah exactly so for instance you know we do not think of abraham and sarah as kings do we Mm-mm. but if you go and read in genesis chapter 12 it will say very specifically in there that uh, they both were raised up to be king, king and queen, essentially. It doesn't say queen, but that they would be, uh, their heritage would be that of kings. Mm. And then out of their loins would come rulers. And so we see that down through uh, Isaac and Jacob and on down the tribes were to be rulers. I mean, and we have the tribal names. So if we could kind of step back and say, okay, this is the story of rulership and kingship and how it's supposed to operate, because that's how government structures are set up. You know, going back to the earliest societies, you have to have order. And the order comes when you have a ruler, a beneficent ruler who is, you know, who has a heart of compassion and mercy for his people, because we all have to live under it. 
And I don't have to, to tell anybody today, look what happens when there's chaos and, and illegitimate people are ruling over you and they're ruling over you, you know, with oppression and, and tyranny. This is the story. How do we get out from under this, even though we live in it? And then we see Israel constantly, well, not constantly, but being exiled out of their land under their losing their monarchy, their land, their structure, and then ending up, for example, in Babylon, living under another Mm -hmm. empire, being oppressed. So the story in the Bible tells us what it's like for Israel to live under the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. What is it like to live under world empire? Because you have these two competing. You have the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah. And he is the one who will reign forever and ever. So that's the bigger picture. And again, it shows us how, what, what a right king who rules by righteousness and justice, what does that do for the people? It allows you to be free and, and sort of in self-determination and to create for yourself an environment that is reminiscent of the garden and how it was supposed to function. Right. That's so interesting. It's so awesome. So let's jump to water. So we've talked, you've talked a little bit in one of your videos about water and you talk about it being a place where things drowned and died. And then you also talk about it um, in the going back to creation, that the waters were separated and how mm-hmm. we see that repeat itself through scripture. So do you want to unpack that a little bit? Well, certainly out of the so the creation story is kind of reminiscent of an of the Babylonian creation story. They every culture has one. Mm-hmm. And in the in the Babylonian if we understand that the Bible was kind of written later, post-Babylonian exile, you have to appreciate that there's probably stuff in there that is from their current, more current experience. So in Babylon, Babylon, of course, reached a great height. And the Babylonian creation story is called Enuma Elish. And it's about this, the, the god Marduk. And, you know, he goes to battle with Tiamat, uh, his nemesis. And and some scholars will say, and I, I, we can't prove this, but the, the Tehom or the deep that we have in Genesis one could be a cognate form of Tiamat. And so this, this weird battle goes on and, and, uh, he sli- Marduk slices her in half and she, half of her body goes to the lower waters and half her body goes to the upper waters. And that, that's their kind of creation story. So you do have this idea of the lower and the, and the upper waters. And again, you have this contrast between the waters that cause chaos in the camp and the waters that bring healing. Mm -hmm. So every garden in the ancient, you you, obviously you can't have a garden without water. Mm -hmm. You can't live without water. So water is a very important element in the functioning of the garden and bringing that life. And as I mentioned earlier, the idea of the life giving waters that come from the womb and produce and reproduce. So in the camp of Israel uh, at Sinai, of course, you're, you're wondering where on earth do we have a water supply? And then we, we see in Corinthians talking about the spirit sent rock and then the waters that come and we see Moses, you know, however that looked, I mean, I'm not really sure, but then he strikes the rock and then water comes out of the rock. 
So you can't have a garden pattern picture temple thing without some sort of water source. So that becomes a very important element. And of course, you see that all through the Bible, mm-hmm. speaking of, you know, the waters of creation or the the uh, the Siloam, the Shiloh, the, the gentle waters that we have out in Isaiah and that the, that the waters are there. The waters of creation are to reproduce after like kind and bring forth life. So, again, the battle is between life giving and life, you know, killing mm-hmm. <laughs> and that. You can see that's clearly today. We, as as kingdom citizens, we are either producing life or we're producing death. Mm. There simply is no middle ground where you're kind of half in and half out. Your life either reflects that uh, life giving or life taking. And so then you see, sort of in the policies of government, if you the way to determine whether they're right and just. Is are they producing life or are they producing death? Mm. Like I think it's kind of simple. That's how I figure out stuff. And so everything about new creation, the rebuilding of a house, so that as a seed will come forth, an heir to the throne, and reproduce after like kind and keep the generations going eternally, all birth through water. Mm. That's so interesting. Um and then again, you, you everything kind of goes, just keeps playing back and forth yeah. in a sense. Because yeah. you talked about kings, of course, needing water because they need the water for their gardens and they're known as gardeners. And But then you also talk about when a king loves someone, when a king says that this is the one they love. Okay, yeah. So that's uh, that goes back to it's actually an early ancient Mesopotamian coronation ritual in which when a king, the son of the king and the one designated for the throne, because you understand that kings had more than one son, like they had lots from different wives. And so the king would determine which of the sons would be the one destined for the throne. And in in doing so, he would call that one the one whom he loved. And as that king the heir and son to the throne, who's also called the son of God. That's a title for the king that would come to the throne. There was a ritual that went and they, and it went something like, this is my beloved son, whom I'm loved, who I love in him. I am well pleased. The only begotten son of the, of the father. You hear all that language. It's all through the Bible, Mm -hmm. right? But it's generally pointing to the son that will take the throne. That's the son that the father loves. So, for example, we get all bent out of shape over Jacob with Joseph, the the son whom he loved, and we're, we're like, "What is this chaos?" You know, within the family. And so then you can see that um, it, it's it's more of a, a prophetic thing in that Jacob recognizes this his son Joseph, whom he loved. Not that he loved him more than he couldn't stand the rest of his sons, and this is you know. It's that he recognizes this would be the son that would take the throne, which clearly we see happens in Egypt under Pharaoh. I mean, he's like second in command. So anytime it's talking about that, you can see that in the story of David and on and on. And then ultimately Yeshua in his, when he is immersed in water and the dove lands on him and a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is part of the coronation ritual. It is a declaration that this is the son who will take the throne. He is my heir and he will take the throne and rule and reign after Hmm. me. That's cool. Because the other thing that comes to my mind is God specifically says, 
Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved. Right, right. So, you know, the hate thing. So we're going to look at it through our own modern filter of what love is and what hate is. Um, But that's not kind of how they saw it in the ancient world. So the idea of love had more to do with a covenant relationship. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a hatred would be someone outside that covenant relationship. All that the covenant affords goes to that one person. And then, you know, the other one's kind of outside the camp there. And then again, being outside the camp meant you're exposed to all the dangers and, you know, the beasts and the, the, the famine and pestilence, all the stuff you're exposed to outside the camp. Right. Because even Jesus brings it up. You know, if you don't, you know, hate your mother, hate your father, yeah. hate your brothers, sisters. I mean, again, it was built on your covenants with me, your covenants, not with them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that puts it in, in a better light for us to understand because we can make idols out of those we love. We can make an idol of our husband or our spouse or our child. And, and I certainly know people who will, who will lift their child even above their spouse, you know, in that kind of wrong relationship. And so we have to be careful that we're not putting them on a pedestal over the covenant we have with the Messiah, with Yeshua. So it all makes sense when you start understanding, like you said, the language of the ancient East. And, and that makes, it just helps us because we come to the Bible with even our American minds or our, our Greek, so to speak, our Western mind. And we try to make sense of it when it's written in Middle Eastern language and thought processes and experiences. That's our biggest challenge. And unfortunately, uh, even in some of the rabbinic commentaries and things, which are, are more out of the Middle Ages, it's it's challenging to get back to that period of time and be able to to see that as sort of the lens or filter for the Bible, which isn't to say that's where we live. We do need to bring it forward to our time and, and make an application in that way. But I think we do ourselves a great disservice by not looking at the culture and history and language of the period in which it was written. If we can first go there and and dig out of there and go, okay, just in the perfect example here of the, the, the one whom I love, you know, and whom I'm well pleased, my only begotten son, uh, we understand that as an enthronement ritual that, you know, that opens up half the scriptures uh, of things that we haven't really, you know, been able to make sense. So I'm a big advocate of this. And I've spent, you know, the better part of the last five or six years trying to understand the ancient Near East culture better. I'm appreciative. We have so much scholarship out there. I mean, in the late 1800s, we got all the clay tablets coming out of the cuneiform tablets coming out of the ancient Mesopotamia. I mean, they're just so rich and so much has come out in it. If we would just take the time now, it can be overwhelming. Um, but I would just encourage people to, to at least begin to, you know, engage in some of this thinking. There's, there's some real simple books that have been written, um, that just sort of explain the ancient world a little better. You don't have to dive into the whole thing. Probably you don't have time or the energy, but at least to appreciate that. And I think we'll better understand the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I agree. Anything you want to leave us with that we, we didn't go over that you might want to touch on? Well, I just want to encourage, I mean, if you want, you like this and you want more information, certainly go and get my books. Um, 
And, you know, I know people had sort of a, a little trouble with the first book, the, the Temple Reveal and Creation, because it's kind of an abstract topic, like what on earth does that mean? And so, uh, you know, the second one and third with the Noah's and the garden were much easier, but I would encourage you just to, to read them. I do write in them uh, fictional accounts. So I'll take a, a, a ceremony that's in the temple, for, for example, and I'll make up a guy and I'll just give you a window in how that ceremony or, or ritual took place by creating a story around it. I do that quite a bit in the books. So again, they're all on Amazon and, uh, you know, I would just encourage, I really want to encourage people just, uh, to, to at least have an open mind on this and not be mm-hmm. so dogmatic and, and closed down that it is one way and it's the only way. And, and especially, you know, within their Torah observance to not mm-hmm. get locked into, you know, the, the minutia of it or an argument over it, but to say, okay, is there something in in what they were doing anciently that benefited the community. And that's why God instituted for them. And then how can I make an application for that um, today? So my website's foundationsintorah.com. Again, you can go there. You can, there's lots of free stuff and you, you can become a member as well. And Amazon has the books and you can also, I, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show that I have a newscast that's on Rumble. You can just go to Dr. Dina Die. that's on Rumble. And, uh, you know, reach out to me, send me an email. You can go to Dina Dye, D-I-N-A-H-D-Y-E at protonmail.com. If you have any questions, I always answer them. So, you know. And I will leave all of that information in our show notes as well. But I did want, um, when I checked out your books, um, I have some in my cart on Amazon, but you can get all three books for $22. So they're not expensive books. No. Um, and they're on audio $22. as well. Okay. Yeah, you can read. So they're on Kindle, audio, and, uh, you know, paperback, whatever your choice mm-hmm. is. And then I am then working on another book. There. Oh, sorry. No, you just said the workbook is on um on Amazon as well. Yeah, yeah, that's paperback. I didn't do a uh, Kindle workbook because you, you want to be able to write in. Oh, yeah. And I'm working on a new book uh, kind of telling my story from uh, 1970, well, going back even earlier, but when I became a believer in 1979. So the kind of my history mm-hmm. and the wandering Jew, it's, it's probably going to be called the wandering Jew. <laughs> that's good. That's cool, though. I like that. Yeah. Um I I uh I appreciate you being on here today and and just you know the things that you teach and I will say um just because I didn't get this at first when to get access to the free stuff you have to sign up as a um register to get the free yeah, stuff yeah. so you still need to it register. just keeps yeah keeps the riffraff mm-hmm. out so just you know you can sign up for free it's the mm-hmm. you know the free membership but I, you know, that just helps not, you know, we don't have to deal with hackers right. and everything right. else. No, I get that. And, but uh, I didn't, I just tried yeah. to click on them and it wouldn't let me click okay. on them. Okay. So, there yeah. are some videos that are available to anybody, okay. but you wouldn't know which ones they were. Right. <laughs> until you went exactly. on the site. Yeah. And so the one I saw um, from Sinai to Sermon on the Mount was totally free after I registered. Um, and so yeah. there are those and, and you'll learn a great deal. And some of them are anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. And um, so, but they're just very interesting. I, I had my notebook, I took notes while I was listening. So um, I just encourage you to do that in, in the way 
Dr. Dina is able to bring things together, the old and the new Testament and bring it together. And it makes sense and it helps you understand scripture more. So I encourage you to go and check out her site, check out some of her books, um, even all the free stuff. If you can't afford the books right now, just check out the free stuff. So it, you will be blessed. So thank you. I appreciate your, your teaching, your, you know, everything you brought to this podcast. And I know that we like, you know, Sometimes I wish I could just go like part one, part two, part three, part four, because there's so much we could talk about. And um, oh, yeah, so much. Yeah. So one of the things I do, uh, too, I'm I'm kind of very efficient with my teaching and my words. I don't use, a, you know, I find some will fill a teaching with lots of scripture. I don't do that. You know, I'll send you to the scripture, but my whole goal is to get as much packed into a 30 to 45 minute teaching as I possibly can and then your job will be to go back and unpack it and spend more time with it I'm just going to give you you know as much as I can in that short amount of time but then it's up to you to do your your research and your homework okay sounds great well thank you thanks for taking time out of your day to be with me today so I appreciate it my pleasure thanks for having me thank you for listening to grafted Jewish roots of Christianity You can find me at www.graftedjewishroots.com. You can also find me on Twitter at GraftedJewishRT. I appreciate you being with me, and I'll see you next time.